This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Stuart Sutherland. Today we're we're focusing on pride in earth sciences and speaking to members of our community who also belong to the LGBTQ rainbow. Our interviewee today is Stuart Sutherland, a paleontologist. Uh, Now Stuart, in this series we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific studies. Uh, Would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? Oh gosh, Um, all of the above. All of the above. (laughs) Just to be awkward. Yeah, I I think... um, well, I've certainly done research in the past, although now I mostly concentrate on teaching. But I think um, you've always got to be a student. You've always got to keep learning. I'm always learning new things. And a hobbyist? Yeah, I guess I am. I, I'm just a big fossil nerd, I suppose. So I, I'm one of those lucky people who uh, he, his job is also kind of a hobby and a passion as well. <laughs> well, that's a great attitude. Um, it really permeates every part of your life. Um, now, you are a paleontologist. How would you define a paleontologist? Ooh, okay. Uh, in general, a paleontologist, it's not always the case, but in general, uh, most paleontologists will be geologists. So they will have done a geology degree. So we would have studied uh, the earth, its history, the rocks and minerals that make it up, but also fossils as well. And then a paleontologist is generally someone, uh, it's a specialization. So you generally would have got a geology degree and then you would have specialized uh, either in a master's degree or as a PhD and doing research into paleontology. Um, That's not always the case. We do have um, some paleontologists at UBC who took more of a biology route into paleontology because effectively paleontology is fossil. So it's kind of like, fossilized biology, uh, but mostly it's geologists who become paleontologists. Interesting. And um, how did you get into the field? Oh, I guess I was always that kid who, you know, if you're going to visit your auntie Blodwin and your uncle Fred on a Sunday or something, and your mum had put you in your best clothes and said, right, you can go outside in the backyard and you can play, but don't get dirty. I was always the kid prodding things with sticks or digging holes in the soil and looking for stuff. And I think it's always been with me because of that. Uh, but moving on from that, I had an uncle who was a, a high school science teacher. And we, as uh, the two families used to go on holidays a lot together and he was always showing me rocks and fossils, which sparked my interest there. And then I would say it was uh, a high school teacher, a, geologist who was a high school teacher who really kind of inspired me to uh, continue with that into my career. Wonderful, wonderful. And incidentally, this wasn't your um, first career, was it? You were a a school teacher for a while too, right? Well, kind of. Actually, paleontology was my my first career. Um, But what happened, I I got um, some teaching experience sandwiched in there as well. after uh, my degree and my PhD, um, I knew that I wanted to continue an education in some way, but in a university environment. 
but I wanted to get some experience of teaching. So I took the, what is in Britain, it's called a PGCE, a Postgraduate Certificate in Education, which qualifies you to be a teacher. So I took that as a kind of an introduction to teaching. And then after that, I didn't go into high schools uh, or elementary schools. I then continued with uh, universities and teaching in that uh, environment. Well, I'm sure that's why your students love you so much today. And oh, <laughs> why you're such an effective paleontology prof uh, here. I, I think they just like seeing me fall over and do pratfalls and lectures or forget where my pointer is. Or I think that, that, that's, that's another thing. <laughs> but that's the, something you learn in an elementary school too. <laughs> that's right. They're kind of the, the nutty professor kind of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have gone out in the field. Uh, mm -hmm. Made any discoveries that you're proud of, or? Um, well, yeah, quite quite a few. Um, my research was based in Britain, in a place called the Welsh Borderlands, which, as its name suggests, is right on the border between England and Wales. And uh, I guess through the course of my research, I discovered about well, about five or six new fossil species, which I was able to name, which is kind of cool. Oh, fun! Yeah. Uh, what? kinds of species like um, aquatic, marine? Right, the ones I was looking at were, were microfossils, so tiny fossils that you need to look at uh, using a microscope. So you take uh, the rocks that you're studying and you dissolve them with very powerful acids and you concentrate up this organic residue which is basically ancient ocean plankton and so I was looking at Fossil plankton, basically. What, what we think, well, we're not sure what they are. These are, creatures are called chitinozoa, and they are what are known as, um, uh, what does it call them? They're, they're, they're biologically uncertain in terms of what they are, but we think they might have been the eggs of something, some animal living in the oceans, but as of yet, we still don't know what animal that was, which is kind of exciting, actually. <laughs> so you just took one really cool thing, uh, paleontology, and another really cool thing, working with microscopes, and you put them together uh, to make a doubly cool field. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, yeah, I got to use um, a scanning electron microscope as well, which is, you know, super cool. So that's, uh, you know, where you can get these really, really cool uh, close-up images of things, you know, many, many thousands of times. <laughs> now, um, you're... Do you get off into the field very often, or um, has it been a while? It's been a while, actually. I said mostly I'm focusing on teaching now, so um, I've not been out into the field in a research context for a long time. But um, whenever I am out with friends or, or you know, out on vacation, uh, I generally get collared as the as the uh, you know the pet geologist, paleontologist. So I'm forever being brought interesting rocks and fossils that people have found in their travels or as they're hiking around somewhere. So yeah, it's still pretty cool. That's true. I have seen your vacation photos a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's lots of rock in them, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing I've been hearing from a lot of our researchers is that the craziest stuff happens out in the field. Um, mm -hmm. They've always got these exciting field stories. Uh, has anything uh, bizarre or interesting ever happened to you out in the field? Gosh. Um, Bizarre or interesting? Um, well, you see some bizarre things uh, when you're out. I mean, you've got to qualify this. Obviously, I'm 
I did a lot of my research in the UK, which is very different from doing research in Canada. Uh, I found it very uh, strange, I suppose, that when I came to Canada uh, and was out in the field, uh, I had to think of something that I didn't have to think about in Britain. In Britain, all you really have to worry about is can you get back to the pub before it gets too busy to get a pint so you can look through your notes. In Canada, one of the other things that you have to worry about, of course, if you're out somewhere in, uh, in the wilderness, is am I going to end up with something's lunch? So uh, that was new to me. The idea of paleontologists going out with uh, bear bangers and uh, sometimes with rifles and so on. So uh, that's kind of strange for a Brit. I'm not really used to that. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard that a few times. Uh, people are having to contend with grizzlies or polar bears. and Yeah, I know one of our, one of our colleagues at, yeah, uh, in the department, um, he was climbing up a ridge somewhere up in the north of BC and looked down to where camp was and could see a grizzly bear eating his tent. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I, can, I could live without that experience. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that is a big difference between our paleontology and England's. <laughs> yes, um, very much so, yes. Yeah, the only thing you have to worry about with animals in Britain is the possibility of a sheep falling off a cliff. So, you know, always wear a hard hat. <laughs> Now, the, uh, the research that you did do, um, did it have any real-world applications, or um, was it just yeah. add to greater scientific knowledge? Well, partly that, um, but also it's, it was, um, in terms of the greater body of knowledge, it was looking at, um, well, basically, you know, what was the diversity of these creatures back then. It was also using those creatures uh, to try and... Um, See if we could identify cycles in these oceans over 400 million years ago that might point towards ancient cycles in global warming and global cooling. So looking at changes in microplankton diversity to see if we could say something about the environment and how it was changing back then. But in terms of very practical ways, um, it, uh, these fossils are very good at defining particular parts of geological time. Um, so they characterize certain parts of Earth history. It's what we call biostratigraphy. And if you are trying to find out where you are in the rock record, so if you're trying to find oil or gas or something else precious, you need to know where you are in time. And if you understand what these fossils are telling you about when they lived, you can use them for that purpose. Oh, I never thought about that. that that's two things I, I hadn't thought about. Right. Um, using fossils to locate natural resources, mm -hmm. uh, but also learning about ancient uh, climate changes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, the, the ones fossils that I was studying at kind of feed back into that loop as well, because very often the ancient microplankton in these oceans is what would settle onto the ocean floor. And if it wasn't, if it didn't become fossilized, it could be converted over a million years into oil and gas. So if you're driving a car or you came to work on a bus today that's, you know, a, a gas-driven bus, you are possibly actually driving on maybe ancient microplankton that's over 400 million years old, which is kind of an interesting thought. You certainly put the fossil into fossil fuels. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Now, um, as we were talking about, you've had a, a bunch of different careers, a field mm -hmm. researcher, uh, a lecturer, prof. Um, yeah. So 
what's your most uh, exciting part about your work? And I'm sure because you have had different jobs, uh, you've got different things that you love about each of them. Wow, the most exciting part? Um, one of them is realizing how very little I know is kind of exciting. You know, um, what is some of our famous comedians said, you know, people keep telling you, well, science doesn't know everything. And they say, well, obviously it doesn't, because if it did, we'd stop. And the fact is that not knowing is actually really quite exciting. And having, you know, ideas that I used to have uh, regarding the way that the earth worked and his earth history was have been overturned you know, in the time I've been at UBC, so it's continually changing. So that's one of the exciting things. Uh, but for me now as, a, as a, a professor who's, you know, pretty well focused on teaching, just, I just love being in a classroom. I, I love teaching, you know. I'm a, I get this opportunity to be a, a science nerd, uh, and they pay me to do it. It's crazy. <laughs> Well, and again, I, from what I've seen, your students absolutely love it. I've heard uh, nothing but good things. Oh, that's good to hear. They, they, they must have it. It's, it's a two-way thing. They actually provide a lot of the energy that inspires me. Yeah? So it's, uh, it's always good to see those uh, smiling, interesting faces, which has made you know, current times in this online environment a little more challenging. But yeah. Still I guess, yeah. <laughs> mm. I guess a panel of... Uh, Blank Zoom screens doesn't quite mm. get the same feedback. Yes, yes, because obviously people don't often want to share their Zoom screens, so especially if you've not tidied up your bedroom that day and you've got socks hanging off the, uh, you know, off the lamp lampshades. You probably don't want to be showing that. So uh, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, that brings me to another question: um, How else has uh, COVID affected your work? Oh gosh. Um, well, that's been one of the major regards is having to try and interact and make um, what is, uh, I have a fairly dynamic, should we say, active classroom environment, which is the way I like to teach. But trying to translate that into an online environment has been challenging. We, you know, we've done the best we can. Um, not meeting colleagues just as you're wandering through the university has been been interesting as well although I must admit um, we've uh, I mean you're part of this group as well every Monday a lot bunch of us meet up and just have a coffee and uh, so we have kept that collegiality going so I'd say those two things the challenge of converting active learning into an online setting but also just making your friends and colleagues at work every day yeah I would have to say that I concur <laughs> yeah been the biggest change. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, now, today's podcast is uh, not just about celebrating people in the Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences, but also uh, celebrating queer people in the Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. Um, however, unfortunately, it's not always the case that um, people are celebrated for these differences. Uh, in general, have you found this field to be uh, welcoming or, or hostile? And has there ever been an occasion where uh, that's been a factor that's affected your studies or work? Right. I would never say I personally have had a hostile experience okay. um, in terms of the context of being a geologist. Uh, you've got to remember that you know I'm getting kind of ancient now. So when I was doing my undergraduate studies back in the 1980s where things for, for gay people were, were quite different. I grew up in blue-collar Manchester, 
uh, in kind of an industrial setting where coming out as being gay, say, at high school would be tantamount to, well, it wouldn't have been a pleasant thing, to put it that way. So you kept it closeted, you kept it hidden. And uh, although, you know, things were definitely more liberal-minded when I went to University of Plymouth, um, the general attitude of the population back then, although things were starting to change in the 80s, was still difficult. Uh, there wasn't the freedom that a lot of us enjoy today. So that was something which I just kind of unfortunately kept with me uh, all the way through my um, my degree and my PhD and my postdoc as well, really. It wasn't uh, until I got to Vancouver and UBC that I actually came out. So I was in my, kind of my early 30s, I guess, uh, when I actually came out. Um, not because I was particularly threatened in Vancouver. I guess it almost became almost a habit, almost. Uh, I'm glad I certainly did now, of course. But uh, yeah, uh, I, I have not had any challenges since coming out. Um, everybody has only been extremely supportive and welcoming. So, uh, I mean, I, I understand that at a university, again, we are in a very privileged situation where we do live in somewhat of a bubble. I know that even in Vancouver, in, uh, in Canada, there are very likely gay people who have had, even in these times, very different experiences. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, that's, um, well, I'm, I'm really glad that, um, that you feel comfortable to do that here in, in, uh, in our department and in this city. Um, I'm glad that, yeah, you took that step. Me uh, too. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I have to say that you're one of the first people who welcomed me um, as a gay man into the department as well. So um, I want well, to thank we're very lucky to have you here as well, Daniel. You've, you've passed on the torch uh, and it is flaming. <laughs> it is flaming. You're, you're making the museum fabulous, Daniel. Be proud of that. <laughs> well, Stuart, thank you very much. Um, it's you're very welcome. It's a pleasure to chat with you. And Likewise. Again, if anyone ever wants to take a paleontology course, Stuart is the one you want to study with. Uh, he's just amazing. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And I hope to see you all in a class face-to-face <laughs> -face sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.